This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Woe, Women On Air, a podcast celebrating and championing women who are taking risks, making waves and challenging the status quo in their fields. Join me as I interview women making their mark in communities all over New Zealand. They're innovators, leaders, changemakers, creatives, movers and shakers and general boat rockers. Listen in as we get exclusive intel about the successes, the speed bumps, the tangents and the tips that got these amazing women to where they are today. Hello and welcome to Woe. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Kyla Colbin. She is the co-founder of BOMA Global, CEO of BOMA New Zealand, and a certified dare-to-lead facilitator. She is a renowned and sought-after international public speaker, having presented to more than 25,000 people about the exponential technological trends coming our way and how we can be more intentional and intelligent about the future we're creating. Kyla spearheaded the hugely successful Singularity U New Zealand and Australia summits, introducing more than 2,500 people to exponential technologies and their impact on humanity. Kyla was also formerly the curator and licensee for TEDx Christchurch in New Zealand and TEDx Scott Base in Antarctica. She is also a co-founder and trustee of the non-profit Ministry of Awesome and has extensive governance experience, including serving as chair of the New York-based Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts and deputy chair of Christchurch NZ and Core Education Limited. Kyla became a certified Dare to Lead facilitator after training with Brene Brown and has worked with over 1,300 people to increase courage as a core competency. She is also a certified EXO consultant, a climate project ambassador who trained with Al Gore, and a project management professional. A native New Yorker, Kyla speaks English, Spanish, French, and Italian. She holds a degree in hotel and restaurant administration from Cornell University and has been a serial entrepreneur since the age of 22. Her purpose in life is to be an uplifting presence. Wow, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today, Kyla. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Gosh, so right now as we're recording this, we are in level four lockdown in New Zealand. How's lockdown life treating you? Uh, you know, by and large, it's pretty good. I'm, uh, I remember last year when we had our first lockdown, um, I saw a tweet that said, uh, sure, working from home's easy if you own your own home and have somewhat grown standardly able children who are largely capable of looking after themselves and a loving non-abusive partner who is willing and able to help around the house. And it was kind of a list of all of my privileges. And so I'm really mindful um, that, you know, lockdown can be really challenging for people and I never want to be insensitive to those challenges. Um, we're very, I'm very blessed with all the all the things on that list that actually working from home is quite a comfortable uh, thing for me to be doing. And um, I quite enjoy, you know, my family and um, uh, and I do, um, you know, intellectual work, which means that I have the ability to um, work from almost anywhere. So um, so I quite like it. And we live right by the beach. And so we do get to get out and, you know, enjoy nature a bit and look at the water. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't feel like um, an imprisonment. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's good that you're managing to do that. And I agree, um, you know, it's important to remember that the situation isn't the same for everyone. And there's a lot of uh, inequity um, still in New Zealand, and especially in things like the digital divide. Um, I'm being quite mindful of that as an educator. I was in at school yesterday um, providing laptops to students who don't have them. And at the same time, we're also giving out some of our... Um, food and you know sort of tin baked beans and marmite and peanut butter and things that we still have at school from our, our breakfast clubs and uh, also provided a number of people with sanitary items too because it's just it's those um, you know things that people can't necessarily easily access um, you know that's really highlighting that uh, we've still got quite a long way to go really. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that COVID has really shown me, and I think shown all of us, is that those um, 
those disadvantages are there by choice. And when I say by choice, I mean by cho by our choice, by choice of the government, by choice of the, the people, not by, not by the choice of the people who are suffering from them. So yesterday I was watching uh, Chris Hipkins talking about how, you know, they're working so hard to make sure that everyone has internet access so the students can all continue to learn. And what that says to me is that the only thing that was preventing us from doing that prior to COVID was that we didn't have the will for it. And there is no reason why we should not be treating the internet absolutely as a human right that, you know, you can't work if you're not connected to the internet. You can't, you know, the most jobs, you can't get a job connected to the internet. You can't access benefits. You can't, you know, there's so many things that are absolutely fundamental to being part of our modern society that require access to the internet. How is this not a basic human right that we guarantee access for, for all people? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it was a while ago I saw, you know, someone had jokingly um, adapted Maslow's hierarchy of needs and put Wi-Fi right at the bottom um, underneath shelter, I think it is. But, um, you know, that's not really a joke. Um, yeah. It is, as you say. It might not be under shelter, <laughs> no. but it's certainly on the list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, listen, um, I'm really keen to hear you know, how this whole, uh, your whole career started, I guess, right back at the beginning, if you're willing to go back that far, um, you know, to your childhood and, you know, what, what it was like growing up in New York for you and your experience learning and being at school. Yeah, so my career and life generally um, has been incredibly forest gumpy in nature. Um, definitely one of those that um, I would not point to as a guide for anyone. Um, it was a lot of kind of stumbling along going, that seems interesting. I'll give that a go. Um, my family, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. There's no one in my family in any direction as far as I can reach that has uh, what I would consider a kind of traditional nine to five job. Uh, my mother founded a cooking school. She founded the oldest natural foods cooking school in America, uh, which we have now licensed to uh, to another cooking school and created the Natural Gourmet Center at the Institute for Culinary Education. Um, my father was an actor. Um, so we had a lot of kind of randomness when I was a kid. And um, I adopted that very early on. You know, I was seven, seven, eight years old, uh, I would take books from my mother's bookshelf and sell them on the sidewalk in front of our apartment building. And it was, I'll tell you what, it was an awesome business model because uh, my cost of inventory was zero. <laughs> and so um, if you have a, a parent who is willing to let you steal their books and sell them without charging you for them, then yeah, you can, you can have a pretty good business going. Um, but I, you know, I, so I started very early on just kind of going, well, what can I do and how can I, you know, do something in, that keeps me engaged and keeps me interested. Um, my first job, you know, so I, you mentioned in my bio that my degree is in hotel and restaurant administration. And uh, what I, one of the things that I learned from doing that degree was that I did not want to be in the hotel and restaurant industry. <laughs> um, but I still really valued that education because for two reasons. One is that it was a really excellent kind of generic business education. So a lot of what we learned in hotel and restaurant school was transferable to really any other business. Um, and particularly the critical core focus of it was this concept uh, that the founder of the school had summed up as saying, life is service. And the one who succeeds is the one who provides a little more, a little better service. And so I've carried that kind of hospitality service mentality to all the business ventures that I've undertaken. Um, and it's kind of never steered me wrong. It's I think it's a that's a it's a very useful maxim. So graduated uh, from there. And the first thing I did out of uni was uh, I, I joined a startup that was a subsidiary of a British merchant bank. And we were doing trade and project finance. So this was in Miami, I was living in South Beach, Miami. So Basically, you know, fresh out of uni, party town, um, working on this ridiculous, like, private island, setting up loans for foreign corporations that wanted to purchase U.S.-made capital goods. And uh, what that means in, in more plain language is that I worked with organizations like, you know, the John Deere distributor in Guatemala, 
who needed to purchase, you know, 20 tractors for their distributorship. And what we would do is we'd work with um, all sorts of kind of government loan and insurance schemes to help them get financing so they could purchase those tractors. This is it's something that's really common. Countries want to increase their exports. And so they set up ways where they can go, oh, well, if we can help you get access to cheaper money or help you get access to financing at lower interest rates, then you can buy more tractors. So so we did that kind of thing. Um, the first year that I was there, you know, I was I just turned 21. Um, I was being paid $20,000 a year. I was basically a glorified secretary. That's pretty much what my role was. And the company was started by these three very fancy ex-bankers, like from Mellon Bank and Citibank and um, Lloyds Bank. And the entire first year that I was there, they did not bring in a single dollar of revenue. And after a year, and uh, you know, we they, we were owned by this British merchant bank, and it was a pretty wild setup. Where it was like every month, we'd send a fax off to London and say we need you know seventy thousand dollars for this coming month, and they'd send us the money, and we'd pay all our fancy salaries and our fancy office building, and then not my fancy salary, <laughs> the fancy salaries of the of the of the guys who were running the business, uh, and then uh, and then we'd we'd continue not bringing in any money. And at the end of the year, they cut us off and our uh, three guys who were awesome at selling themselves, if nothing else, um, found a Qatari sheikh to invest in the company. And one of the one of the three guys decided it was all too stressful and he went back to work at another bank. Um, But the other two stuck it out. And because they had a system there that was you needed two signatures on the checks for security purposes. And one of the guys had left, which meant there were only two left, which was a big risk because if something happened to one of them, nobody could sign checks. So they promoted me to vice president. Um, and uh, and so now here I was, 21, 22, uh, vice president of this company. Still no clue what I was doing. Um, you know, still no revenue. But the s- entire second year that I was there, uh, 100% of the revenue that came in came in through deals that I worked on. Wow. And uh, I think the the um, part of the reason for that is because I worked on all the really kind of boring um, deals that nobody was particularly excited about. And I did all the really boring things that we needed to do to process those deals. You know, there's if you're dealing with a U.S. government loan insurance scheme, that is a boring, like, truckload of I's to dot and T's to cross and, you know, negotiating contract line by line. And, and, you know, what I really learned from that experience is that that final mile of the marathon is often the longest and the hardest. And it's really the one where things kind of either happen or they don't. Um, And I came away with this real appreciation for just how much persistence and determination it takes to shepherd these kind of big tricky things across a line. And that is also a lesson that has kind of never served me wrong. I'm gonna pause because you asked me to start at the beginning. I mean, that could just that one question could be hours. <laughs> so I just wanna see if, if you know how we're going, if we're on the right track here. Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, already you were thrust very quickly into a a management role. I don't know if that was a leadership role. Um, but, you know, it sounds like you seem to be someone who is very good at picking up the, the takeaways um, that, you know, you, you took away from your um, degree at Cornell, that, that underlying philosophy around hospitality that you brought into the next field. Um, and it seems to me that you're, you collect these sort of, was it philosophies along the way to sort of build your own way of being and working? Is that sort of... Am I on the right track there? Yeah, yeah. That's I'd say that's a really accurate insight. You know, certainly I don't enjoy repeating mistakes, so I try to <laughs> I try to figure out what I can learn from different situations. And you know, when I look back at the sort of phases of my life, I definitely can go, oh, right, that's where I got that insight from. That's where I got that insight from. Um, yeah, and you know, the takeaway from that work with the with the guys was. Um, you know, just how much of a slog that final, you know, that final push can be to actually make some, turn something from, oh, it's definitely going to happen to, oh, it has actually happened and now the money's in the bank. Yeah, man. And so 
where did you go if you say you're a serial entrepreneur so where did you go or from you know next um you don't have to maybe tell me all of them if if you don't want to but maybe an interesting sort of next step for you are following that yeah absolutely so um so i did that um you know stuck it stuck that out for another year and then uh i met a guy through through that company and an argentine guy and um i fuck up about argentina holland poland uh, my mother grew up in Argentina, so I, that's my third home country. And um, this guy, uh, he was a very fancy, very worldly, older gentleman who, uh, you know, was charming and charismatic. And he said, we need to go in business together and you need to be an executive and an entrepreneur. And I was like, yes, I do. I'm 23. I deserve to be an executive. And so... We started a company uh, which was distributing large format digital printing supplies in South America. So this is all the raw materials to make bus graphics and giant billboards. So, you know, huge rolls of paper, huge rolls of vinyl, giant jugs of toner for these big printers. And that sounds like, oh, we went and started a company. Really, the the reality is, again, a lot less glamorous than all that. Um, he had an existing company in Argentina that did large format digital printing. And so, again, effectively, you know, I thought I was an entrepreneur and executive. Really, I was a glorified purchasing agent for his company. Um, and, um, and you know, when uh, we, we worked on that for three years and uh, I wasn't quick enough or bright enough to secure additional clients. Uh, and so eventually his company in Argentina went under and that took 95% of my revenue with it. So um, so again, you know, lots of big takeaways from that mm -hmm. one. Probably the biggest one was just how um, I think, you know, naive and, um, and maybe unsophisticated, I think I was in terms of understanding what business is this? How do I make money? How could it scale? How could I grow it? Who else could I sell to? You know, there were just so many kind of mistakes that I made there. Um, from there, I started another company uh, with a with a different uh, friend, a friend of mine, Ken. We created a company that was teaching kids and parents how to use computers and the internet. Oh, cool. So we started by producing a series of videos and we made these videos and we put them out on VHS. It was back in the day, VHS day. So we put them out. We called them the Real People's Guide. So we had the Real People's Guide to the Internet and the Real People's Guide to Windows, Word, and Excel. And we, you know, we did them. We produced them all. We hired a director and we hired actors and we had a lighting person, a makeup person. Like we did the whole uh, editor. We did the whole thing. And we made these videos and we put them out and they were not an over overnight success. And so we said, it's a disaster. We're not overnight millionaires. We have to do something else. Nobody wants to learn this stuff via video. Everyone's reading books. We need to write a book. So we wrote a book and then we put the book out and, we're, and we self-published the book and we're like, oh, the book isn't an overnight success. It's a disaster. We need to combine the book with the video. So we designed this <laughs> fancy packaging that would allow us to have the VHS tape in there and the book and have a spine, but you could still flip through the book. But, it, you know, so we did all that and it wasn't overnight success. We it's a disaster. We need to do something else. That's not working either. We need to do a, um, a, a national tour. So we did a national roadshow tour. We got a 40-foot rock star tour bus that we decorated with all my friends from the digital printing days and um, went all over the country running shows at schools, teaching kids and parents how to use computers and the internet. We you know, got 5 million impressions. We were on CNN and Entrepreneur Magazine. Again, none of it really, um, you know, even like there were a lot of kind of stats that were good for us, but none of it really like a breakthrough success. And ultimately, uh, we, we, you know, we just couldn't keep it going. My father had a stroke and 9-11 happened and, you know, it just, we ran out of money. It just all got too hard. And I went to Colorado to be with my family and sort of lick my wounds. But, you know, the takeaways from that, there were a couple of takeaways. One is that the whole time that we were going, this is a disaster. We need to write a book. This is a disaster. We need to do a tour. The original videos were still selling. They were sales were trickling in for them pretty consistently for the all the years that we did that company. And I often wonder what would have happened if we had understood how to execute a proper distribution strategy. Because right. that was something that we did not have. 
And so we basically just kind of said, if we do it, they'll come. And oh my gosh, they didn't come, give up onto the next thing versus they haven't come. Have we fully backed this? Have we really tried to understand how who buys this and how and what the channels to market are and what the price points need to be and who we who the distributors are and how we need to do this? So that was one really big thing. And then the second thing is when we did the um, the stage show, the traveling stage show, which was a really big success, we were really unclear on what our business model was. And so we had sponsors, we had Hewlett Packard and um, Symantec, which is a big antivirus company, and Terra Lycos, which was a big social media, Spanish language social media company at the time, um, all sponsoring us. But we weren't clear, is this a for-profit thing? Is it a not-for-profit thing? And so when we went into schools, like how we spoke about the sponsors was a little bit tricky. And, you know, it was never quite we never quite understood exactly what the model is. We, did, we uh, delivered to the schools for free, uh, but we hadn't quite sorted out how we could scale it and make money out of it. So um, so that was all, you know, again, all huge lessons. And I, what I can tell you is even though now I'm so grateful for all those lessons, by the end of it, I when I got to Colorado and got to my, I moved in with my sister, I curled up in a room for six months and just was like, Give me a job with a paycheck. I don't want to be in charge anymore. It's too stressful. <laughs> so yeah, that was my uh, a few of my early entrepreneurial adventures. Yeah, I can imagine that you know, and I guess every entrepreneur or someone who's involved in a startup has to go through a certain amount of you know learning as you go and building the plane as you fly it, as they say. And um, but I suppose I'm guessing what you do at Boma, if we kind of connect in with that, is supporting startups to. Uh, go through that process with mentorship or the idea that you know you're trying to prevent having to reinvent the wheel as much as possible is that sort of part of what you do with your program there or I misinterpreted yeah part of what you do what you've just described is really what we do at Ministry of Awesome so oh, was you know, so I that's right. all right. Yeah, I, I my family still doesn't understand what I do, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so ministry, you know, so I co-founded Ministry of Awesome in 2012, just uh, after the earthquake here. And Ministry of Awesome, when we first started Ministry of Awesome, our whole copapa was to water the seeds of awesome in Christchurch, and you know, create an environment where more people could pursue what got them most excited, and where you didn't have to feel like you were crazy just because you had a crazy idea. That organization has really evolved over time, and is under really excellent stewardship with Marianne Johnson as the chief awesome officer. I'm still on the board there, um, uh, but uh, but not involved operationally. Um, and we have a new chair as well, Dale Otea Stevens, who's doing a phenomenal job. And where um, where Ministry of Awesome has evolved to is really being a force for high growth entrepreneurs and startups in Aotearoa, in, in Christchurch and, and across the Motu. And so um, that's really exciting because they're now, they've now partnered with ADA, uh, they've partnered with Christchurch NZ, uh, they're working with all sorts of organizations, they have an incubator uh, called Teohaka, which is on the ADA campus in town. They uh, do hackathons, they do challenges, they do so many wonderful things. And really what we've seen is some really uh, extraordinary outcomes of startups getting fantastic funding outcomes, of startups, you know, job creation, uh, you know, acceptance to other, you know, globally renowned incubators and accelerators. So really, really proud of the work that's being done there. That's amazing. So you've been involved in a startup for startups. Correct. <laughs> I love Correct. that. That's very cool. And yeah. so, um, again, I just, you know, bring, come to this with my own lens. How did, what does your work with schools and educational institutions through the Ministry of Awesome look like? Yeah, so again, I'm not operational with Ministry of Awesome, mm. so my day job is BOMA. Sure. Um, and with BOMA, our focus is how we can be more intentional and intelligent about the future. And we do that through a variety of activities that come under the general umbrella of transformational learning experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and those activities tend to fall, those learning experiences tend to fall into a few different streams. So one of them is we do corporate and professional development, executive development, leadership training, things like that. We run a transformational executives program. Uh, we run a transformational directors program for people who have a board function. We run the Dare to Lead program, which is the training that I did with Brene Brown uh, to increase courage as a core competency. 
So that's one piece of the work we do. We do uh, major events, but we're not an events company. Like if Spark came to us and said, you know, can you run our sales conference? That's not us. Um, but we run major events, proprietary events where we feel like our unique focus has something to add to a particular sector. So right now we only have one major event in our portfolio, which is called Itsipu, which is the Boma New Zealand Agri Summit. And that's focused on the future of food and fiber in Aotearoa. Mm. And then we have a program called the Boma New Zealand Educator Fellows Program, and that's powered by Christchurch Airport. And that's a program where it's a fully funded scholarship program for a group of 10 secondary school educators in Canterbury. And it's a year-long program, and the educators uh, basically get challenged with uh, to, to adopt exponential thinking to transform learning outcomes for young people. We started that program. This is the third year we're running it, so we started it two years ago. First year, the teams got to go to um, to San Francisco and San Diego and visit some really amazing places, High Tech High, June Jordan School for Equity, IDEO, Google X, a bunch of stuff like that. Wow. Obviously, the following year, no longer possible. <laughs> so we've reworked the program, still seeing really incredible outcomes from the educators there in terms of uh, what they've gone on to do and the way that they're applying what they learned on that program. And then we get quite a lot of educators through the Dare to Lead program. That's a really popular one with educators. I think Brene is reasonably well known in the education space. Um, and so, you know, that's that's always really gratifying to me because I know that if one educator comes to my program, that can affect hundreds of kids. And that really gives me a lot of joy. Wow, that sounds so amazing. What incredible opportunities you're managing to provide to the organization. And so um, I'd love to, oh, which one do I start with? Um, maybe you could tell me a bit about what um, you're seeing through the scholarship program for the Canterbury teachers, what uh, you're seeing them do in terms of shifts in education or what their thinking is needed or what the future of education needs to become to meet the needs of our young people. Yeah, I, I might share with you, um, you know, I recently spoke at the National Association of Secondary Deputy and Assistant Principals Conference, and one of the things I shared with them was um, a couple of promo videos for an organization that my family um, has signed up for, and that's uh, an organization called Synthesis. So th Synthesis is basically an online school, online virtual school. Um, it's only an hour a week, and uh, I stumbled onto it on Twitter. I had no idea what I was looking at, uh, but the videos that I saw were intriguing enough that I said, well, let's sign up and see what happens. So I've got three stepsons. The middle boy is 11. Uh, he was keen, so we signed him up for it, and he started, uh, he started his first class uh, a, a few months ago, and he basically does this online school from 8 to 9 a.m. every Thursday. And effectively... You know, I watch these videos and the videos are kids talking about it and they're saying things like, it's basically like freedom school. You have to learn how to work with other people. You can't just say this is my idea because someone else might have a better idea. You, you learn to lead with kindness. And then one kid said something that I was like, oh my gosh, here's my money. Where do I sign up? One kid goes, you either win or you learn. You never really lose. And I was like, oh, my gosh, take my money now. Yeah. <laughs> so basically the kids play games, but they it's on Zoom. They go into breakouts. They have to play as teams. They play against each other, but they don't get told any of the rules. And so when Sawyer, our middle boy, uh, on his first day of, of uh, doing this program, I had a meeting that took me to 8.30, so I missed the kind of first chunk of, of him on the course. And then I wandered out and was like eavesdropping. I'm like, ooh, what's going on in the synthesis things? I was very excited about it. And just as I came out, they were back in the main room and they were debriefing from a, a session they had run. And um, the teacher is saying, so, you know, what did you notice on that round and one of the kids says, oh, I noticed that when I clicked over here, I got twice as many points as I was expecting. And then she says, oh, that's really interesting. Why do you think that is? And the kid says, oh, maybe it's because of blah, blah, blah. She says, oh, that's good. What's what's another, that's one hypothesis. What's another potential hypothesis? And another kid goes, oh, maybe it's blah, blah, blah. And bear in mind, these are kids eight to 14 years old. They're all mixed in together. There's no, it's not done by age. It's not a, you know, formal curriculum. 
Another kid says, maybe it's blah, blah, blah. She says, oh, that's another hypothesis. What's another hypothesis? So another kid says, maybe it's blah, blah, blah. She goes, great, we've got a bunch of hypotheses. How are we going to test them? And the kids are like, oh, we'll go back in, and this time I'm going to just specifically do this. Okay, awesome, away you go. So she's never giving them any of the answers, like exactly what it said on the tin, what I was hoping for. <laughs> third session, third week into this, the Sawyer comes out of the room. I said, how was Synthesis Day? He goes, it was so awesome. I had an idea for a strategy, and I spoke up, and I told them my idea, and we went with it, and it worked. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, I just want you to do this all the time. <laughs> so here's the thing that I find really interesting. I listened to a podcast with the CEO of Synthesis, Chrisman something. Chrisman Smith, maybe. I don't know his last name. Anyway, Chrisman, whatever. I listened to this podcast with him, and he said, why would I trust my kids' education to the best teachers who happen to be within a 50-kilometer radius? Mm. And I was like, that is a really confronting question. Mm. That is a really confronting question. And what I said to the NASDAQ folks, and what I would say to you and to your audience, is, is this, that there are absolutely things, because of the way that the internet has rendered borders, not meaningless, but rendered borders much more permeable than they had been previously, that there are absolutely things that we should be going, who is the best in the world for this? And then within our education sector, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, what is it that only we can deliver? There is no Silicon Valley-based online school that can teach our kids Matsuranga Māori. Mm. There is no virtual program from Asia that can teach the kids the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. There is no program anywhere that can give our kids a sense of place and connection and whakapapa the way that our teachers and our educators and our system can here locally. Mm -hmm. But we need to stop thinking that we have to catch these kids for everything and be all things to them and instead think, what is it that we are uniquely positioned to deliver that will give these kids something that they can get nowhere else on this planet. Wow, yeah. That's a huge thing to think about, actually. And um, as you say, making the most of everything that's available to us. Um, really sitting back and reflecting on what education really means for us in our place. Um, compared to, you know, as you say, what we can, what we have access to from other places really helps you prioritize, you know. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good food for thought um, for us as educators moving forward. Absolutely. Goodness. Um, and so far out, the, these are huge things that, we're, that I'm grappling with, huge thoughts that I'm grappling with here. And so what about um, if you're working on this kind of thing with educators um, in, the, in the scholarship program in Canterbury through BOMA, what, what does your leadership and your Dare to Lead program look like in conjunction yeah. with that? So we do in the in the um, Educator Fellows Program, which, by the way, is run very capably by my colleagues Kit Hinden and Rebecca Robertson, um, members of the BOMA team. Um, so it, in that program, I deliver a, a, a small segment of Dare to Lead, mm -hmm. um, but the full Dare to Lead program is a three-day program. It is really robust and immersive, and basically it walks through the four skill sets of courage, which are, uh, number one, rumbling with vulnerability, our ability to lean into and navigate vulnerability. Number two, living into our values, our ability to turn values from kind of fluffy words on the wall into tangible and practical behaviors that we can hold ourselves and each other to account for. Number three, braving trust. And braving trust there is an acronym which represents the seven elements of trust that emerged from Brene's research. And then number four, learning to rise. And learning to rise is simply the insight that, uh, you know, the physics of courage are such that if you are brave enough, often enough, at some point, it's all going to go terribly wrong. And what you choose to do at that moment will determine whether, you know, Dare to Lead was a, a, an interesting program you did that one time or whether it forms part and parcel of how you show up as a leader. And what we find is that, you know, there are plenty of educators who... 
would go through the full educator fellows program, um, but who would still come and do the full Dare to Lead program because it's really very unique in terms of its structure, the material it covers. And, you know, when I went to do the training for that program, I did that training two and a half years ago, almost two and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, I've spent, I spent 10 years running 10X Christchurch. You mentioned I ran, you know, Singularity U, New Zealand and Australia summits. These are organizations that are, you know, they're based in New York. They're based in Silicon Valley. They work, deal with all these kind of fancy people. I've met a fair few people who've written a book and given a TED Talk. And as a result of that, when I went to do the training with Brene, you know, I don't want to say I went in cynical, uh, you know, maybe a little cynical, like I'm from New York, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't go in like sulky, but I didn't go in as an unmitigated fangirl. But that training was among the most powerful three days I've ever spent. And the research is incredibly robust. The methodologies that she and the team use are robust. It generates really profound insights. And, you know, I've facilitated, as you said in the bio, for 1,300, 1,400 plus people. It just gets richer and richer the more we work with it. And so the opportunity, you know, three days is is the program, it's nowhere near enough. You know, three days is like the beginning of the journey, right? right? And the opportunity to work with educators to help them start to incorporate this stuff for themselves as well as for their kids, it's just transformative. And I'll give you a little example. So uh, again, you know, the, the three stepsons, um, one of them came in to see me yesterday and he said, um, can I talk to you for a minute? There's something I've been carrying around and I want to make sure to address it. He's 11 years old. Wow. And I said, what is it? And he said, the other day, uh, I, you know, we were playing charades and I got sulky and I left and I feel really badly about it. And he got a little bit emotional when he was telling me this. And I could tell you as someone who teaches courage, uh, it was all I could do to not like jump out of my chair and be like, yes, you're so awesome. I mean, I basically, I, I, I conveyed to him you know how incredibly proud I was to him uh, of him for having the emotional intelligence to be able to notice this is what happened. His father had encouraged him to write to to write down answers to the questions: What happened? How did I feel? What could I do differently? His mother had encouraged him to work on those questions when when he was at her house and it was on his own volition that he had circled back with me and this was days later days after the incident and I said you know it would have been so easy for you to have just pretended it never happened to just never have the difficult conversation and I said you are operating right now at a ninja level of emotional awareness that a lot of adults adults never reach right Mm -hmm. like there how many adults do we know who we as grown-ups will carry around things that are bothering us and we don't circle back to just put them out on the table and deal with them. He fully owned his behavior. He didn't try to blame anybody. He showed up for it. And, you know, if we can create environments where we're bringing our kids up to behave in that way, then, man, the future is looking so bright. It's just, it's nothing but possibility, I think. Mm, That's amazing. And to create and be conscious of creating that culture in your family environment as well you know clearly this is something that isn't just reserved for workplaces you know you could for to take part in this program you know might give you skills or access or strengthen those skills within yourself that you could apply to different a whole variety of contexts yeah, so the Dare to Lead program is Brene's work specifically as it applies to the organizational context. Mm-hmm. And I'm always careful to, to put that boundary in place because sure. I want to be clear, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a child psychologist, right? So there's there, there are absolute you know boundaries to my expertise that I don't want to be um, misleading in any way. Um, you know, that being said, the material that we're dealing with involves interpersonal dynamics. So it's mm. only relevant if you ever have to interact with other human beings. Otherwise, <laughs> you could probably ignore it. Um, and so, of course, there are you know insights that can carry through to our families, to our friends, to our personal relationships, 100%. And so can you talk more about the concepts um, that you cover a lot or you work with a lot in that um, setting, things like vulnerability and okay. courage and how they connect? 
Yeah, absolutely. So vulnerability is a really interesting one and uh, a concept that we carry a lot of myths around. And, you know, the number one myth uh, about relating to vulnerability is that vulnerability is weakness. And, you know, I've asked this question of everyone who's ever done a program with me and pretty much 100% have said yes, at some point they have associated vulnerability with weakness. But of course, vulnerability isn't weakness at all. The definition of vulnerability is risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. Mm. So we do a little exercise and I'll invite you to do it and uh, your listeners can do this as well. You can play along at home. So here is the exercise. What I'm going to invite you to do is call to mind a time when you saw someone doing something courageous. Okay, it can be somebody you know, somebody you don't know, something recent, something a long time ago, something big, something small. All right, mm-hmm. you got your got your moment of courage? Um, you don't have to tell me what it is. Mm-hmm. Just Yep. Yeah, you got it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I want you to ask yourself, what role did vulnerability play in that moment? Was that person taking a risk? Were they facing uncertainty? Were they opening themselves up to emotional exposure? Mm-hmm. So here is the thing. You cannot have courage without vulnerability because without risk, uncertainty, or emotional exposure, the thing you're talking about isn't courage. Mm. It is the risk and the uncertainty that makes it courage. And so we say, you know, Brene says, vulnerability is our single most accurate measure of courage. They are utterly inextricable. You cannot have courage without vulnerability. Right. Vulnerability. The vulnerability defines the courage. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, you know, when we when we say, well, vulnerability, uh, you know, we associate vulnerability with weakness. It, it takes extreme strength to be willing to be vulnerable because it takes the courage to be willing to fail, mm. to be willing to have it go wrong. By definition, if you are engaging with risk, uncertainty, emotional exposure, you don't know the outcome and you cannot control it. And so that willingness to step up, to lean in, to, you know, we, we use the metaphor of being in the arena uh, without armoring up, uh, without trying to protect ourselves, right? That metaphor, like that is the thing that takes really extreme courage because it could go wrong. You know, people mm-hmm. come on the program and I'm like, look, I can't guarantee you, you want to go have this difficult conversation with the, your colleague that you've been struggling with. I can't guarantee you it's going to go well. Your colleague might not be interested. Your boss might not be interested in building a courageous workplace, mm-hmm. right? I can't control that, and neither can you. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, when you say it that way, they they cannot exist without each other. Yeah, yeah that's that's so powerful. There's a, wow. And every, you know, every situation I can call to mind where I think of that was a courageous moment or a courageous act. Uh, you know, meets those requirements of it being a vulnerable moment as well. That's incredibly powerful. So I I know that there's also this concept um, that you've talked about before, and I was lucky enough to be at your talk at uh, the APDP conference, and you talked about um, the concept of shame in connection with with this as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, shame is... uh, (laughs) so. One of the main reason the main reason we avoid vulnerability is that vulnerability sits at the kind of gooey center of all the emotions we least like to feel as human beings. And the mother of all emotions that we least like to feel is shame. Um, really useful, just like I did with vulnerability, as we do with all the concepts in the Dare to Lead program, always really useful to come back to definitions because with all of these concepts, we've got different understandings of them. And so making sure if we want to have an effective conversation about them, the first thing we have to do is to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. So with shame, what we're talking about is the deeply uncomfortable and often painful feeling that we are somehow flawed and not worthy of love, belonging, or connection. Mm-hmm. And effectively what shame is saying to us is, I am bad. It's different to guilt, right? Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. I am mm-hmm. not good enough. And the critical things to understand about shame, there are three really important kind of one, two, threes. First thing to understand about shame is we all experience it. Shame is one of the most primitive of all the human emotions. Um, for me, it's kind of utterly obvious as to how this serves us an evolutionary advantage. You know, we evolved 
to band together as tribes. And getting kicked out of the tribe is literally a life or death crisis, right? Mm -hmm. If we get kicked out of the tribe, we die alone eaten by wolves. That's basically what happens. And so anything that threatens our ability to be part of the tribe is activating a part of our system that is like all hands on deck emergency. This is, you know, life or death stuff here. So we all experience it. The only people who don't experience shame are people who are incapable of empathy and human connection. So psychopaths and sociopaths. So, you know, pro tip, you either fess up to feeling shame or you fess up to being a psychopath. And <laughs> this is definitely the only time that shame seems like the good option, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the first thing. The second thing to understand about shame is that none of us likes to talk about it. And just saying the word can make us feel squeamish as soon as we start saying, oh, this, you know, secret fear that we're somehow flawed and unworthy of connection. All sorts of people are like, I don't feel that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Um, none of us likes to talk about it. And I believe the reason we don't like to talk about it is because we're all carrying a fear that if we talk about it, we will be proven right. Mm -hmm. And none of us wants to risk. We'd rather, we'd rather sit with our secret shame and the hold out hope that we might be inaccurate, then put it out into the sunlight and prove ourselves accurate. Mm. But the converse to that, the, the counterpoint to that is the third thing to understand about shame, which is that the less we talk about it, the more power it has over us. And the happy converse to that is that the more we talk about it, the less power it has over us. So far from talking about it, making it worse, talking about it actually makes us less impressed by it. And when I say impressed, what I mean is, did you ever see the movie A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. Okay, so in the movie Beautiful Mind, and I'll describe it because maybe some of your listeners haven't seen it, but Beautiful Mind is this movie it's with Russell Crowe where he plays this mathematician, John Nash, and at the beginning of the movie, you meet him and a bunch of his friends, his flatmates, and as the course of the movie goes on, you start to realize that these are imaginary friends that he has, I think, schizophrenia uh, or something, and um, and that you know these friends are not visible to anyone else. And forgive me for the spoiler, but honestly, the movie's like twenty years old. So, <laughs> um, so uh, so there. So so you go through this movie, you work out, you know, and then it goes through his his discoveries and wins the Nobel Prize or whatever. But it gets to the end of the movie. There's this scene where Russell Crowe is walking into one of the buildings on the Oxford campus or wherever he is. You know, these fancy old stone buildings, and he's walking in there on his way to his office, and he is just like head down, focused, thinking about his math stuff. And off to his side are his four imaginary friends. And they're kind of rocking each other up and giving each other a hard time and tickling each other and kind of tumbling along in much the same way that you might imagine a, a parent walking down the street with three kids who are kind of, they run ahead, they run back, they're playing games, right? And the parent is just focused on doing their thing. And the kids are with the parent, but the parent's kind of undeterred and isn't like, oh my gosh, you've run a little bit ahead. Oh my gosh, you're running a little, right? And I think about this, to me, this scene epitomizes where we have the opportunity to get to with shame, which mm -hmm. is that because we all feel it, we're never gonna get rid of it. That's not the goal. And we shouldn't feel shame for feeling shame, but we can stop being impressed by it. We can stop hustling for it. We can stop going, oh my gosh, I feel shame. What do I do? I stop everything. I can't do this. I can't do that. I need to, I need to go hide in a closet. I can't leave the house. I can't tell anybody. I can't talk to anyone, right? Instead, we could just get to a point where we go, huh, I'm feeling some shame there. That's interesting. And go on with our day. That's mm. really where we want to get to. Right. All right. I guess it's that um, sort of that positive psychology concept of name it to tame it, that, you know, if you're able to spot it, notice it, and, you know, articulate what it is, then you reduce the level of power that it has over you, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we know, shame really can't survive sunlight very well. It certainly can't survive empathy. And the more we talk about it, the more we go, oh, man, you feel shame too. So do I. Then now we've got this connection. Shame is the secret feeling that I'm unworthy of connection, but the connection itself has just disproven my shame. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. Name, name it to tame it. I like that. I hadn't heard that one. Oh, <laughs> that um yeah, thank you. Uh, glad I had something to offer. I'm just I'm just sitting here trying to <laughs> soak all this up. I'm so glad this is recorded, so I can go back and listen to it all again. Because um, you've covered so much, but I just really love the way you 
use analogy to to do that um, because that really you know the the power of the story kind of makes helps me to understand the concepts that you're covering because these are big big meaty ideas that but really uh, fundamental to so much of our way of working you know in in the organizations that that we work in um, I, I've got a question that I'd really like to ask you. I'm really intrigued to hear your response because this is um, something that I ask everyone uh, near the end of each episode. And, um, you know, this, this podcast is all about women who are change makers and boat rockers and leaders in their field. And you're definitely one of those people. So I'm very interested to hear what you would rather do. Uh, would you rather steer the boat rock the boat build the boat or something else i am going to answer this question can i have five seconds to answer this question yeah for sure okay hold on a second here Here's my answer. Ready? <laughs> okay. I'm quoting someone. Right. I'm, I'm quoting Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who is the author of The Little Prince, which is a book that every single person on the planet should read. If you haven't read it, get it right now. <laughs> and go I'm read writing it. it down. Okay. So what he said was, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead... Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Wow, that's beautiful. So would I rather build the boat, rock the boat? Well, I forget what the other one was. I would rather teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Far out. Yep, I definitely think that that sums up the way you've been talking this entire episode. Yep, you really do think big, big picture. And um, I really love that, you know, you're... Um, purpose in life as you said was to be uh, from your bio was to be an uplifting presence and I think that that uh, that quote definitely resonates with your with your purpose in life if that's still the same one <laughs> it is. oh yeah that's been my purpose for years and years yeah thank you Oh, that's awesome. Look, thank you so much for joining me today, Kyla. This has been absolutely amazing. I wish I could talk to you all day. I've got so <laughs> many more questions. Maybe we'll have to uh, um, catch up again at some other time if, if you'd be open to that. Absolutely. Very happy to come back. Oh, thank you so much. You have been listening to Woe, Women On Air. You can search for our page on Facebook and we are at woe underscore podcast on Twitter. New episodes are available from the ORFM Dunedin website, oar.org.nz, and wherever you find your favourite podcasts. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.